kia ora everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Stag Raw. We're sitting down with Dave Feldman. Dave Feldman goes deep on what it means to have cholesterol scores and what they mean for you. At Dave Keto on Twitter, you can follow Dave's work and his little N equals one experiments. He also elaborates that on his website, The Cholesterol Code, where he gets N equals one experiments from other people to make N equals many. Um, a bit like Sean Baker, really, with the carnival diet. Dave selects people's blood work and analyzes it and tries to fit it into his pattern for the term that he's coined, I guess, the lead mass hyperresponder. So without further ado, let's hear about what a lead mass hyperresponder is and enjoy the podcast. Cheers. Hello, everybody. I'm super excited to bring you this episode. I'm talking with Dave Feldman, who, if you're on Twitter and following my Twitter, you will have seen a few retweets of this guy. He's flipping the cholesterol paradigm on its head, which is awesome because I was really confused about cholesterol until I found Dave and, and another person who's also an engineer, Ivor Cummins. Um, Dave, before we get into it, what did you do on the weekend, man? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Try to remember. <laughs> well, uh, I, uh, I I ate to a specific food plan, <laughs> um, which we get a chance to talk about. Uh, and I did a lot of data entry, and I did a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. Um, actually, a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations uh, with some doctors, uh, a researcher, um, Siobhan, who's been working with me quite a bit, and uh, also... Um, a few individuals uh, who reached out to me for some help and I kind of helped them out on some, uh, some things associated with lipids. Nice. While we're on that, what does it feel like to be a computer engineer and tell people about their blood work? <laughs> it's, it's so surreal. It's, it's truly, it's really hard to describe to somebody just how I've lived my whole life writing code and looking at networks and, particularly getting just deeper and deeper into my understanding of uh, architecture from a very non-human side, from a very software-generated side, uh, you know, servers and aggregates and so forth of uh, packets, all of that. And weirdly having just this completely bizarre curveball come at me, um, it's about three years, so... And about three years from this coming November will have been the beginning of the journey. And um, now, like, I'm shocked at just how obsessive I get with the human operating system. And uh, in particular, the, the energy moving around, especially with the case of lipids. But, yeah, I actually I enjoy seeing a lot of different lipid panels because they all start kind of coming together and coalescing in these different patterns that explain a lot. Um, when you're looking at it, from a certain perspective. Beautiful. So who is Dave Feldman? For those that aren't following me or you on Twitter, who's Dave Feldman <laughs> today, man? Apart from <laughs> a little bit heavier than you were than you were a wee while ago. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And you're welcome to point that out, by the way, <laughs> as we'll get into in a second. So I went on a ketogenic diet in uh, April of 2015. And uh, about seven and a half months later, I found that I had super high levels of cholesterol and that concerned me quite a bit. And that's when I became very obsessive about studying everything about the lipid system. And as I just mentioned a little earlier, 
I having already been somebody who is deep into uh, software engineering and for that matter, abstract mechanics, kind of how things work holistically. Uh, it, it really started to become obvious to me that it was primarily an energy distribution system, really a network that the lipoproteins that are moving around your body and the system that moves them around in your body is actually very sophisticated, but is primarily, primarily about distributing these fatty acids to tissues. And at that point, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't really know that cholesterol is truly that independent, like a separate thing all on its own. I'm willing to bet I can change it around a lot by just changing around my diet, uh, particularly the energy in my diet, the fatty acids in my diet. And then began my now seemingly endless journey of N of one experiments where I've really done an enormous amount of uh, work towards methodically going against these different food plans and tracking everything that I eat and doing lots and lots and lots of blood work. And sure enough, I found that, yeah, it's, it's very dynamic. Um, I've changed my cholesterol very quickly several times over, like many, many, many times over. The, the last major experiment I did in December, I actually dropped my LDL cholesterol by uh, 104 milligrams per deciliter um, in seven days, uh, changing it from 207 to 103. So in a lot of ways, I even jokingly say that I'm kind of a cholesterol traveler <laughs> and that I moved up and down the scale so much. Nice. The, the first time I was following you on Twitter and then the first time I sort of heard or saw you speak was low carb down over under had put up your speak from low carb Beckenridge and you talked about being at, I think a keto fest or, or something like that where you'd got a large group of people to drop their cholesterol in three days. Do you want to tell us about how you managed to drop your cholesterol in three days? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is a big part of my general theory is that uh, there's a three day window, roughly a three day window that our bodies seem to be, using as kind of its constant sample size. It's constantly resampling three days to sort of get a sense of what it needs to do. And um, it's, it's a little more complex than that, but in general, this is what I found, that if you suddenly decide that you're gonna eat a ton of fat, just lots and lots of fat, you just go crazy over the next like three days. The fourth morning, so the morning after those three days, you would tend to find that your cholesterol dropped substantially. Conversely, if you dropped down your total dietary fat, especially if you're on a ketogenic diet, or for that matter, just fasted for three days, you'd see your cholesterol spike. Your total annual LDL cholesterol would spike substantially. And the reason behind that is because the cholesterol that's getting measured is on low-density lipoproteins. And low-density lipoproteins are the last stage of a life cycle of something that started out as a VLDL. And VLDLs, they are the energy vehicles from fat you had from storage. So they're constantly counterbalancing the fat you're bringing in from the diet. Thus, after I'd done this and replicated several times and several people had written into me that have it, had done it, uh, we were able to get the good folks at PTS Diagnostics to uh, actually fund a little study at KetoFest. 
where we managed to get 24 people. It ended up being 22 at the point that we uh, put up on the blog, but 22 people who had done this experiment. They had either eaten low calorie or had fasted in the three days before the blood draw that we took on the Friday morning before Keto Fest began. And then throughout Keto Fest, just gorged a huge amounts of fat constantly. Everybody was just putting down as much as that they could. And then on the Monday following the weekend, so three days later, we took a second blood test from everybody. And sure enough, everybody's, no, uh, I shouldn't say everybody, 19 of the 22 saw their uh, LDL cholesterol drop anywhere from 5 to 38%. Huge, huge drops. And even of the three that didn't, they saw their cholesterol increase by 1 to 2%. That's it. So across the board, if you mean average all of them, including the ones whose it went up for, there was a drop of a total of 16% of their LDL cholesterol, which uh, translates to 25.7 milligrams per deciliter. So it was, it was actually quite a successful experiment. We're pretty happy with it. No, it was, it was really cool to see you talk about it and just the wow factor and the, and the, the oh, this, this is not what I thought the effect of it. It was just really, really cool. I saw, saw on one of your, your videos, and it's interesting you were doing this with a low-carb community that insulin obviously plays, plays an um, influence in, in your cholesterol. Have you experimented that? with that so far, or um, I see you've done some protocols of standard American diet and actually even on that being able to lower your cholesterol, what are you, what are you finding the lever of insulin does? Ah, so this is, uh, this is where it gets a little more complex, but I'll mention my phase two and kind of technically my phase three research. In phase two, I did do uh, a lot of what I call carb swapping, which is I swapped out fat and brought in carbs. The intent for doing that was to bring, to intentionally bring up my glucose, incoming glucose from the diet, and to try to bring up my existing glycogen stores. Glycogen is stored glucose and typically is stored in the, uh, the muscles and the liver. And it's my existing theory as it stands right now that the liver is kind of the central manager of your metabolism. It's constantly looking at two tanks of energy. It's looking at your long-term tank, and it's looking at your short-term tank. And by long-term tank, I mean the energy that's in the, you know, the deep walk-in freezer that's going to take a while to get out. That's your adipose tissue. It takes a while for lipolysis to activate, get the fatty acids over there, to ultimately distribute, et cetera. But you have a short-term tank, a tank that needs to provide energy quickly. And that tank that needs to provide energy quickly is, is a blended fuel source. Glycogen is the fastest. It's not the most efficient storage. Fat's actually a better, more reduced store. But glycogen is usually right there. Like if it's in your muscles, I mean, there's just no faster means of, of getting the energy. And that's why explosive energy, people who are very athletic, um, need to have some level of glycogen and glucose availability. Your body's being aware of that. But let's say that you're very low carb, you're super low carb, and you just don't have as high a glycogen stores as somebody else who's carb-centric and they're just downing a lot more and therefore have a lot more glucose moving around and so forth. My general theory is that that's part of why the body would upregulate more VLDLs, those, those lipoproteins that provide the fatty acids from storage to keep them on hand. So they're not in the deep freezer. They're 
they're at least out on the table <laughs> and in the bloodstream, if you will, so that they're a little bit easier to access, right? So with that in mind, my phase two was to see if I top off or at least bring up the glycogen stores in my liver, would that then bring down my VLDL circulation and thus bring down my LDL particle count and cholesterol? And thus far, every single experiment that I've done where I've been able to bring up my glucose for a period of time and bring up that threshold has shown that yes, it does bring down my LDL cholesterol. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people misinterpret my phase two as me uh, condoning having more carbs in your diet. <laughs> and on the contrary, I think I'm actually providing a very real explanation as to not only why it is that much more dynamic, but why I would be less enthusiastic about dropping my LDL. If I know it's basically just a reflection of energy supply and demand. You mm. see what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about that deep freezer and we'll get into your experience with fasting shortly, but Dr. Karen Zinn in New Zealand spoke about how fasting basically gets people to access their deep freezer for a little while. Um, so it's a, it's a yeah. good analogy. Just while we're there, you don't, you don't like it for fasting, and, and do you think that's why you're a, because you're a lean person, do you think? Yes. In fact, um, if I were to consider doing a big multi-day fast again, I would like to succeed at gaining weight in advance of it because I think it's relative to that. Um, there's, there's something that you'll find a lot with low carbers. On one end of the spectrum are a lot of people who did it for health reasons. They're already overweight and looking to lose more weight. You find that they can do uh, multi-day fasting much more comfortably. If you find uh, lean people, particularly the profile that I talk about, the lean mass hyper-responders, they, myself included, have a super difficult time doing multi-day fasts. It just feels awful. It's, it's, our energy runs down. It seems as if our metabolism is running down. I'd, I'd love to do tests against that with resting metabolic rate and so forth. But regardless, there seems to be like this red alert that this is just not right and I shouldn't be doing this. And all of this kind of comes back around to me as further evidence the body is acutely aware of existing energy stores. Very, very aware of it. And you can get a really cut, gorgeous body as a lean mass hyper-responder, but you should know something. You should know that you're actually kind of fighting like mil millions of years of evolution, right? You're, you're, you may want a six-pack, but your body doesn't give a crap about mm. what you need. It's always thinking about, hey, uh, winter could be right around the corner. So we want to just hold on to and retain as much energy as possible. And if we can, uh, that's why your metabolism's not running at super high speeds all the time. It's, that would be wasteful. That's the point of that. Sure, if you had more energy, maybe you would you know, run more often in the morning. But usually it's the other way around. Usually you have to be the one to actively consciously start to decide to do running or whatever activity you want to, and then your body catches up to what demands you've applied to it instead of the other way around, right? That's generally the case, and I believe that the reason for that is because, again, the body's main intent is to manage energy above all else. I have this, I have this running joke. In fact, I think I'll probably do this in a conference at some point. What's the, what's the primary purpose of a cell phone? Uh, a normal cell phone would be communicating with people, but now it's about right. 
getting information. So it's prime directive is to uh, provide information, right? That's its prime directive. Yeah. It's not its prime directive. It's prime directive from an engineering standpoint is to stay on. Because <laughs> If it can't stay on, it can't make calls. So its oh. primary directive is to stay on. So what's the primary directive of a car? To work, run, yeah. Right, right, to run, to stay running. Like traveling from A to B, secondary. Guaranteed it's secondary. As so, someone who just ran out of fuel um, last week, forgot to fill up with, with baby brain, um, I can tell you that without fuel, a truck does not run. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So other things like the radio in your car, not really as relevant as your car being able to run. If your car can't run, it's a useless car, right? Try, yeah. to, try to sell your car that doesn't run. You find you don't get a good price for it, right? So no, if it, I, I like to use this analogy as well. If we lived in a world where cars could never uh, be turned off, they had to stay running. 24-7. From the moment they left the manufacturer, they had to just stay running, right? That's us. And guess what? In that world, all of this engineering that's put forth towards form factor and trunk space, forget all of that. Trunk space is gone. Back seats are gone because guess what? There's all this engineering work put towards having blended fuel sources and having excellent and efficient retention because the car remaining running all the time is going to be very relevant to whether people want to keep it. Right. And that's exactly, that's exactly how I'd love, if there was anything I could influence people to do, I'd love them to start looking at anything they ever look at in anatomy, in uh, biochemistry, anything. Start with the assumption that there's a huge influence on energy distribution and energy retention. And if you start from that perspective, a whole lot of stuff makes sense. So, let me give you an example. Um, the paradigm that's often thought of is uh, a diner. So as a good analogy, you go to a diner, you order food, special order food, they then go cook it, and then they bring it out to you. The energy that your body needs to supply can't be like a diner. Every cell that needs energy on demand can't just special order it from the body to bring it to it. So instead, your body's running a buffet. The way you run a buffet makes it a lot easier for you to deal with a lot more customers. And guess what? Your body has 100 trillion customers. There's 100 trillion cells. So it has a scheme by which it says, you know what? I won't promise what's on the buffet, but I'll promise it's always stocked. Mm -hmm. I'll have systems in place that will make sure in the bloodstream and adjacent to you in adipocytes will be a supply of energy. You can trust me on that. I have entire systems all baked into this pie to make this happen, right? And when you, when you start from that perspective, then actually it makes a lot of sense as to why it is that I'm able to manipulate a lot of these systems so easily by just changing my dietary fat when I'm already fat adapted and that's my primary fuel source. I've reduced the blended fuel source down to more of the single variable of fatty acids. And that allows for enormous capability for me to then change these numbers massively and rapidly. And it's not hard for me to absorb that information because I already started from that perspective of the cell phone and the cars. I'm already an engineer. It already made perfect sense to me that these would all be energy-based uh, uh, homeostatic systems. Nice. I'm um, just touching back on something you said about energy availability of, of fat and triglycerides being 
more available than than the glycogen and glucose. Could you delve deeper into what you mean by that? Uh, yeah. So um, there's a and, and to be sure, I'm definitely an amateur biochemist. I don't get as much into the bio. I'm more of a uh, uh, strategy guy than a tactical guy. Mm-hmm. And part of the <laughs> this is going to sound anti-intuitive but I actually find myself having to pull my brain away from biochemistry so that I don't get too distracted by the trenches mm-hmm. because I have to keep it topside for more of the systemic view. One of the problems with getting deeper into a lot of the uh, literature is a lot of the literature is built on existing axioms that I need to be, I need to keep from getting biased by. And that's how I've been able to get as far as I did. So I caveat that as a way that I may misstep in some of the things I'm about to say, but I feel pretty confident in this much. Um, The energy source, especially triglycerides, it's a very, very reduced, it's a very condensed um, provider of ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate. Yeah, anyway, the the gist of it is is that basically, um, and I did talk about this just this morning on Sean's podcast, but take um, um, palmic, Acid. Yeah. It's a little late as we're recording this, so I may be forgetting my <laughs> terms here. It has about a 106 ATP, I think, is its yield, right? But a glucose molecule is around uh, 34 to 38, I want to yep. say. Um, so that's just one long-chain fatty acid, just one. Mm. The triglyceride is three long-chain fatty acids, a serified to a glycerol backbone. Right there, you already have a huge amount of energy, right? We're talking five, six times, et cetera right? More actually. And one VLDL has 2,500 of those on board. Wow. Right. Now that's, that's, that's just one. That's one of those. And you have an amount that's measured in quintillions in your bloodstream right now. A quintillion is a million trillions. So for every one of your 100 trillion cells, right at this moment in time, there are lipoproteins that number in the tens of thousands per, mm. per cell in your body, right? So it's a well-stocked buffet on the fatty acid side. It's very careful that it makes sure that that gets thrown around and maintained, right? Uh, so now we talk about storage. Triglycerides are either as... Fatty acids are in the form of triglycerides either because they're on board a lipoprotein, typically, or because they're in an adipose site, which is, um, uh, which of course is a cell of adipose tissue. And inside of those uh, adipose sites is, of course, these um, these droplets that uh, are just huge amounts of these uh, triglycerides, and they they comprise an enormous amount of energy that doesn't weigh as much as uh, the glycogen stores do because the, for each gram of glycogen, you need two grams of water. But you don't need that for the lipids. The lipids are already reduced and they don't, they don't have that hydrophilic nature. So they don't, they don't require as much to store. So again, the glucose is a faster burning fuel, but it weighs more for the yield than fatty acids do. No, nice. That's, that's really cool. Um, th- as I said, another name Ivor Cummins and then I was just thinking about when you're talking about insulin I think it's Artie Reichman or something like that from uh, type 1 grit he's a physicist and 
I was another engineer. What is it about this abstract systems approach that makes it so easy to to understand something that's just scrambled in in common medical and nutritional and biochemical science? What what is it about that engineering? Well, uh, well, first of all, we 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 already started out as people who took things apart. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it was my grandmother who observed this. She was like, you know, I knew something about you, Dave, because you're always taking things apart that you might end up being an engineer. And I remember asking, don't engineers put things together? She's like, no, they always start out taking things apart. They always take more things apart than they do because, you know, she knew other engineers. And sure enough, that, that turns out to be true because we, you know, we want to see how did that clock pull that off, how to get this going. Well, of course, reverse engineering something that's extremely complex is a real big problem and it feels overwhelming. But here's the trick, the trick to reverse engineering anything that's really complex. You need to make the things you don't know not matter. What? The way you do that is, of course, you try to control all inputs that are potentially meaningful to those things that you don't know about so that you can try to keep them from not mattering, right? So for example, each day since I got back and I switched to a ketogenic diet, I'm having um, scrambled eggs at 10. I'm having hard boiled eggs with cheese at uh, three. I have exactly the same amount of almonds at 5.30. And then I uh, have a final three hard-boiled eggs and uh, cheese at eight. They're all measured, right? And I don't know how much the timing of when I eat matters into what markers. I don't know that. But I feel confident enough that I've learned enough about metabolism to know that that's a very real possibility that they do. That the timing of when I eat including the timing of when I sleep and, and timing of when I sleep is another good example. That's a, that's an area of study that I would like to get into eventually. I just don't have the time now. I can't really get into circadian rhythm and everything that's involved with it, et cetera. But, but I know enough to know that it's going to potentially impact my lipids and therefore I need to control for it. So I try to hit same time windows of when I'm going to sleep and so forth. All of these things I'm controlling for in order so that I don't have to learn about them because I'm already so focused on this other area that I am focused, that I, that I am trying to uh, analyze and deconstruct. And the exciting thing is, the exciting thing is that this inversion pattern exists. And for that matter, this, this most recent thing I was telling you about uh, offline before we started, uh, but I guess I could just share the news here. Uh, yeah, I'll be breaking yeah. the news anyway. So if you <laughs> if you manage to air this before uh, uh, the low carb cruise, which uh, will be in a few days, uh, you get the scoop. <laughs> uh, the gist of it was that I had gone on a two week um, ten year anniversary trip with my wife, and that was going to be part of the period of time in which I was on this weight gaining experience experiment. So hearkening back to what you said at the beginning, and that you gained weight, that's exactly right. <laughs> I intentionally gained weight. Now, this, by the way, I have to say this every time I mention this experiment. I highly, highly intensely um, don't want anybody to do this experiment. In order for me to do this experiment, I had to induce a state of hyperinsulinemia. I don't want anyone to be in hyperinsulinemia. I want everybody to get out of hyperinsulinemia. 
Mm. So while a lot of my experiments are romanticized, this is one I don't want to be romanticized at all. And I want to emphasize, you probably, even if you were thinking of doing it, you probably can't get as useful of information out of it as I can because of how many tests I've done. I'm a unique individual in the sense that I had more to gain by doing this, no pun intended. Um, so now getting back to the experiment, I started um, eating a mixed diet, that is to say car lots of carbs and fat, and lo, you can gain a lot of weight that way. <laughs> Uh, I did try to stratify it a little bit. I tried to keep it primarily flour-based. I tried to keep it, you know, mostly breads, uh, gluten-based pro uh, products as opposed to, like, added sugar. Basically, just trying to keep away from fructose overall. Um, so it, I, I like that because, once again, I'm kind of reducing another potential confounder. Hmm. When I get back, for five days, I had a controlled mixed diet. And the controlled mixed diet meant that um, it was now a fixed meal plan. Whereas on the, the vacation, I was kind of eating all over the place. Now it was a very specific schedule. Also the 10, 3, and 8 schedule. At 10 a.m., I had a foot-long Subway sandwich. Um, it was a um, club with bacon. So good mix of both fat and carbs, right? Then at 3 p.m., I had a medium pepperoni pizza every single day. And then finally at 8 p.m., I had that same Subway, foot-long Subway sandwich. Uh, this was in excess of, I want to say 4,200 calories, something like that. Um, again, not good for you. So while I'm repeating this data, I do not recommend this for any human being. <laughs> um, I then did this for five days straight to uh, maintain this very fixed diet. And then I took a blood test. I took a DEXA scan, I uh, did a uh, resting metabolic rate, I took a huge slew of different tests, even uh, free fatty acid breakdown, where it like, actually will break out all the different types. Um, and I'm excited about that data. I'm, I'm excited to see what that looks like, because sure enough, right then I flipped the switch, I go over to keto, and I had the plan I told you about before. Scrambled eggs in the morning, hard-boiled eggs with four ounces of cheese, almonds, uh, three hard-boiled eggs with four ounces of cheese, and then that's it. And I've had that every single day since Monday of last week. We're recording on a Wednesday, so this is day nine. Mm. Uh, and I think I have two more days or three more days uh, before I stop. And throughout this course of time, I've been getting a cardio check, which is a home lipid test. But on top of that, I've gotten further wide-spectrum tests. So after that first one, after I switched over to keto, three days later, I got another wide-spectrum test. And then four days later, this last Monday, I got another wide-spectrum test plus a DEXA scan. So I'm getting the full entree of data. Um, really, really expansive stuff that I'm actually pretty excited about. Um, but I'll concede this. The original purpose for this experiment in the first place was I was hoping that when I switched back to keto, I would be weight-stable for at least long enough to see how it would impact my lipids. I've not been weight stable at all. I've like immediately started losing weight, like by a lot. Uh, I think it's been roughly um, uh, 0.4 pounds a day on the mean average. And um, sure enough, the news I'm breaking is that, yeah, my cholesterol has been going up each day to substantiate the uh, generally known um, kind of, I guess you could say, uh, common sense that yes, if you lose weight, your cholesterol can go up. I'm going to show that in such a clean, solid line. It'll look like I drew it. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so amazing. And the reason this evidence is so powerful is because I ate to that plan 
And because it's like exactly the same food every single day, you can feel confident it wasn't some unusual supplement or some unusual kind of exercise I was doing or some stressor in my life. All of it, I've been very careful to keep controlled and steady throughout the whole time. No, that's awesome. And um, it just shows that keto diet works. Why did you start keto, man? Uh, in April of, uh, 2015. And, uh, yeah, for, I regularly say this for about seven and a half months, I had total bliss. I was like, this is the best diet ever. Nothing could go wrong. I just can't believe how wonderful I feel. And, um, I assumed like many do when you feel that amazing, your blood, your blood test must be fantastic. And they were except for LDL and total cholesterol which of course it skyrocketed and that's what started me on the journey. Hmm. And so what did you start? Sorry. Uh, what I start going keto, keto diet. Yeah. Oh, uh, April, April, 2015. No, why, why, what was the purpose of, Oh, well, why? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's <laughs> I guess right. that from before. Yeah. Uh, the reason why is because I had gotten a regular checkup the year before and I got an, a hemoglobin A1C of 6.1. Mm-hmm. And a an A1C for those of you listeners who don't know is um, is effectively a good marker for diabetes. If you are five, if you're under five point seven, then you're considered non-diabetic. If you're five point seven to six point four, you're considered pre-diabetic. And if you're six point five and up, you're considered type two diabetic. And since mine was at six point one, I was right in the middle of pre-diabetic from the year before. And I chalked it up to, you know, I, I was eating a lot of junk coming up to a blood test and, you know, there's a lot of deadlines and my business was uh, working through a lot of stuff. So I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to be sure I drink a lot more water and uh, just get a lot more exercise, yada, yada. I come back the next year and I get exactly the same A1C, A1C of 6.1. And I was stunned by that. I was like, oh, sure, it would have gone down by now. And I have to tell you, I, to this day, still occasionally think, wow, I wonder in an alternate universe if it had just gone down by 0.1. It had gone from a 6.1 the year before to a 6.0. It's a pretty decent chance I would have thought, oh, okay, well, I'm basically heading in the right direction or there's some decent margin of error, whatever. I don't know. It's a decent chance after that I would have said, ah, okay, well, I'll just carry on. And I might not have ever tried the ketogenic diet, in which case I might not have ended up in this place where I'm at right now, where Mm. I'm doing all of this research. So it's a real sliding doors kind of moment that that happened. But yeah, my dad's side of the family has type two diabetics everywhere. Like just about every member that's uh, above my age has type two diabetics. Some of them with very severe type two diabetics, uh, uh, diabetes. And I, I know that I don't want that. <laughs> I know that that's something I wanted to curb. So after doing some research, came across the ketogenic diet, went ahead and started adopting it. Nice. And was that before or after Verda Health sort of became part of the vernacular? Oh, definitely before. Uh, in fact, I was there um, about a year after I started keto was low-carb Breckenridge sorry, low-carb veil. It was in 2016. And I was there to watch Sarah Hallberg 
mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that they've finally gotten the funding. She made that announcement at that conference. And I didn't realize then just how big of a deal that really was going to be uh, because I, I think the world of bird. I think I just, I love that they have a nice pristine data set, especially with lipids because they did advanced lipid testing on their population before they started. We didn't have that before. Um, and their, their results are just astonishing. I mean, it's, it's the first time we've had a really rock solid um, study that's going to be ongoing and has actually a surprising high level of retention as well. They haven't lost a lot of people um, who might have dropped off or left the, uh, the study. So I'm very excited about the work they're doing. What's, what's also quite cool is the people that uh, were in the sort of um, common, common use are wanting to jump on over, which, <laughs> which is no surprise <laughs> when 83% of the people keep going and what is it, 93%? starting to reverse their figures and, and then yeah. what they released Something the other day, I, cardiovascular risk factors just plummeting. Like it, it's, that's super cool. Again, your um, LDL did go up. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, I'm a lot of people want me to say that um, – a lot of people want to be able to say, look, LDL doesn't matter, right, Dave? And my, my answer is it's not that I think it doesn't matter. I think it's misinterpreted. I think that the existing interpretation of LDL is itself way too simplistic. Mm-hmm. So uh, I put that out to everybody. Everybody's oversimplifying it. I, I think of LDL as the last page in a book. If you tear out the last page and then you read it, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you. You need to get a, an understanding of what happened with the characters and the story throughout the rest of the book to explain why you have that last page. But the problem is, is that it has still a weak enough association with uh, atherosclerosis that that alone becomes a target for treatment. And that's unfortunately a whole other subject. Mm. I, the one thing that I found confidence in early on in my um, research that I probably don't mention a lot, but I probably should, is that I learned enough in just two or three weeks without knowing any of this stuff that I know now, my general theory, et cetera. I knew enough that at a bare minimum, barest minimum, even if I took what the existing literature says about cholesterol-lowering medication at its word, at its most uh, beneficial-looking numbers, the all-cause mortality reduction is either non-existent or by their biggest promoters in like the 1% or 2% range because they're just looking at just some studies and in the best light and in the certain, you know, certain groups that they want to emphasize, right. For primary prevention to where I thought it, it, I don't even, it, that's not worth it enough for me to even explore this. Like, I don't even know why there's so much advertising around this, knowing that they're using relative risk instead of absolute risk. And particularly that everybody wants to ignore all cause mortality. That's just ridiculous. Uh, but now I know enough to know that actually it's not even, um, I just read this in a study from like last month, which basically just said that uh, there's not been a single statin trial that's had a statistically significant reduction in all-cause mortality, save Jupiter. And Jupiter has a huge number of problems with it, which I'm not going to go into, but the you could watch David Diamond on Jupiter. <laughs> he thinks it should just be straight up disqualified from the mix. But its, it's entry requirement for Jupiter was to have a, an elevated C-reactive protein. And therefore, it's not even it's not even applicable to a typical low carber because it, most low carbers I know don't even have elevated C-reactive protein. So it's 
this whole subject is kind of moot to me, at least me personally. Mm, it, it's interesting you, you say that. Um, I was just down in Hamilton and on, on the drive back, I was listening to Pete Evans talking to Dr. Asim Mahotra and he just basically said what you just said. Um, and as a cardiologist and one of the uh, leaders in cardiology in, in the UK and with the NHS, um, you could probably take what he has to say about statins and, and cholesterol lowering as, you know, as, as a pretty reliable source. Um, and so, yeah, especially what you're saying about relative risk and total outcomes in terms of all-cause modality. And obviously the downside is not talked about enough. And, and that's what he was saying that doctors need to be showing their patients that this is the possible outcome. We're probably not going to give you another day of life. And potentially in that time that you're living, we're going to compromise that we might foggy memory. You might get sore and more achy. You might lose muscle mass. Oh, muscle damage. Yeah. If you're, if you're a woman, your hormones might take off. And with that, you might end up with type two diabetes as well. So, you know, yeah, look, I, I, and not only that, I don't, I can't emphasize enough that I've learned enough about the lipid system to appreciate its support role. So there's the energy delivery role and there's, and then there's what I like to call the support role. And part of the support role is to be available to cells who need to endocytose it, which is another word for just engulfing it. Uh, I don't want to take that away from my cells, which is why it honestly makes intuitive sense to me that there would be muscle pains uh, for people who are on statins, mm. particularly if they have low adipose tissue. Like I, I don't know this for sure, but I'd be, if I could, I would do a study on it. I'd be willing to bet leaner and fitter people who are on a statin probably have the worst results in uh, particularly, you know, the more athletic they are and being able to get cellular repair. Uh, because for cells that can't get enough of, can't synthesize enough of their own cholesterol, they can, they count on that cholesterol being, uh, bioavailable to them through the lipoproteins. That's how they can get that. That's how they can get their phospholipids. That's, that's what makes up their, uh, cellular membrane It's phospholipids and free cholesterol. And you, I, to me, it's just, it's crazy to just inhibit that part of the body because you, you're making that assumption that it's the body intentionally poisoning it poisoning itself like it's uh, lost control and is now oversupplying it for some idiotic reason nice um so in your latest edition from oak up beckenridge you touched on uh remaining cholesterol is that right or oh uh, a remnant cholesterol remnant yes. cholesterol and you brought up a really good point that it was a total triglycerides not ldl plus hdl can you touch on remnant cholesterol and, and what it what it's showing and why you think that's a better risk factor? Uh, sure. So we talked just briefly about the life cycle of a VLDL. The VLDL is what comes from the liver. It's coming. It's making use of fatty acids that came from your adipose tissue. Your, your fatty acids get lipolysized. They're coming out of those adipocytes, and they uh, bind to a protein called albumin and make their way over to the liver, where they eventually get packaged into these new lipoproteins called VLDLs. So VLDLs, they then start making their way around the bloodstream to supply the triglycerides and eventually they remodel to IDLs, intermediate lipoproteins, and then eventually to low density lipoproteins. And this is worth extra emphasis, and I say this in the Breckenridge talk, that energy supply is supposed to be an hour at the most, and that's, that's the very beginning of its life cycle, and then about half an hour as uh, an intermediate lipoprotein. 
Um, I don't know how accurate that is, but I, I would say it's probably true that that is the very short beginning of its life cycle. And of those IDLs, depending on who you read, about half of them return to the liver. They just get reabsorbed. The other half go out into the support role as an LDL particle. That part of the lifespan will last two to four days. Hmm. So the first part lasts an hour. The other part lasts two to four days, which is an, so in other words, 98 to 99% of the life cycle of those lipoproteins should be as LDL particles. So what if they're not? What if for some reason there's more VLDLs in the bloodstream than would be expected? And if there are, because their cargo is primarily triglycerides, that would also mean that there's higher triglycerides in the blood than normal. What does that mean? Well, I would argue that that means that they're having trouble dropping off the energy to tissues. So why would they be having trouble dropping off energy to tissues? Probably because you're already topped off. There's no parking. The adipocytes aren't taking any. You don't have a whole row of different places where you can be dropping these off relative to the quantity that you're putting out into the bloodstream. And therefore, they're, they're hunting and pecking just like, just like the parking lot where you're trying to find a parking space, but it's the holidays, and by golly, you're all just kind of searching. And what happens? The parking lot is just full of cars <laughs> slowly mm. moving about until eventually somebody's like, screw it. I'm just going to drive far away and park somewhere and then get out of my car and head elsewhere. Well, that far away that you park, that's ectopic fat. That's where, guess what? You need to get out of the bloodstream and you need to find a way to uh, put your fatty acids into some other tissues. That's where you get fatty liver. That's where you get fatty pancreas. That's where you get um, uh, para, I forget what it's called. It's like the fat that's on your heart. Mm. These are, uh, fat that's on your heart that's ectopic that's that's the worst kind of fat you have and it suggests that you've been well past your personal fat threshold for a long time right and that's when you're seeing these high levels of triglycerides and because you're seeing high levels of triglycerides you know there's already high levels of vldls so the cholesterol that's found in vldls and not found in ldls that's remnant cholesterol the cholesterol that's found in IDLs and not found in LDLs. That's remnant cholesterol. So in other words, remnant cholesterol is any cholesterol that's not found in HDL particles and not found in LDL particles. In other words, remnant cholesterol is found just in the particles that are meant to be delivering energy. And that's, to me, an obvious signal that it's a breakdown of the energy metabolism. Now, what they do when they talk about remnant cholesterol is they jump to the conclusion because it has a higher association to atherosclerosis that, aha, that means VLDLs and IDLs are atherogenic. Now we should figure out therapies to target them. And of course, I want to tear my hair out because I just told you, mechanistically, a more viable likelihood, I think, unless you give me an alternative uh, explanation, no, you you're experiencing these higher levels of VLDLs because you have a systemic breakdown, not because VLDLs are the bad guy. There's a, there's a saying we have in engineering, and I'm going to give you a more PG version of it. Uh, you can't blame the mirror for how bad you look. Yeah. So the lipid system is your mirror. 
it's telling you how it's going, right? It's telling you how well you are metabolizing energy, particularly the lipids. And for that matter, it tends to coincide with your overall energy metabolism. So guess what? If your triglycerides are low, your glucose is probably low too. If your glucose is high, your triglycerides tend to be high. And guess what else is probably high? Insulin. Insulin is trying to take care of all of that energy that's parked in your bloodstream that can't be parked in your bloodstream. There's no good engineering reason for a lot of energy to be parked in your bloodstream. I've not, I've not been able to hear anybody give me any good example because that is very scarce space. That's why ectopic fat, as bad as it is, is a better option than keeping that energy clogging up in the bloodstream. Yeah, and it, um, you must be rubbing off on me because I immediately think, um, and it's probably listening to Jason Fung as well, that um, type 2 diabetes is not too much blood sugar, it's insulin resistance, and therefore you've got too much blood sugar. And we work you know, in modern medicine of shifting the glucose out of the blood into more cells that they, they can't get in there already. And so it's no wonder that right. each medi medication becomes less and less effective. And oh, funny enough, that sugar keeps going up and up and up. And yeah, it's... That's why I like to say lack of parking. There's not, look, you've taken up spaces. You've filled that, that walk-in freezer. It's full. You're, you're, try, you're trying to find ways to wedge more stuff in there. It's nothing. You had a whole bunch of walk-in freezers. You have so much space to store energy because... We actually have amazing bodies that allow for that. But here's something our bodies anthropologically did not have a lot of practice in, an overabundance of energy. <laughs> That's a brand new problem. We have not had that. The, the vast majority of the population of humans has not had this level of abundance to get to play with for a long, long time. Uh, and all of a sudden now we have it across Western civilization. And guess what? Where do we see all these diseases? Across Western civilization. I don't think it's any surprise at all. No, and um, that's that's where Dr. Jason Fung comes in with his fasting because you've got those full freezers. Whereas in your case, and as a lean individual, the uh, you're, you're you're using the fridge and, and and what you've bought at the supermarket. <laughs> yes, well, the food's barely put in my fridge before it's being taken back out, nice. and that's that's lean mass hyperresponders. They have tons of parking spaces because they're barely parking before it's going back out. I, I like to joke about it this way. If you could put a turnstile into their adipose sites, it would just be spinning, right? Like they, they've just eaten. It's just like just barely gotten parked. And then it's like heading right back out the door again, right? And that's a good thing. That's what, that's what adipose sites are pros at. They're, they're ecstatic. If you're just barely putting something in, putting it back out, they're like a, a, a local FedEx facility. If you were to walk in the door and just see a bunch of packages and you didn't know anybody, you'd be like, oh, this must be some kind of storage facility. It's not. It's not. It's a staging facility. Things are just going to be there just long enough to then get marked and then head back out the door to where they're supposed to ultimately go, right? Um, so that's, that's why, yes, uh, per, uh, per fun, I actually say this a lot to people. I'm, there are some people who are very pro-fasting. There are some people who are very anti-fasting, and I think I almost have kind of a third way, but I say if you can comfortably fast, you probably should. Hmm. Because usually those people who can comfortably fast aren't getting into a fasted state enough. So I'll give you a good example. I have a family member who um, they 
are in a constant fed state. Their body believes they're in a constant, not because, not because that person's eating around the clock, but because that person's super hyperinsulinemic and is definitely well past the personal fat threshold. And so I've been very adamant, you've got to get to a fasted state. You need your cells to rest. There needs to be autophagy. There needs to be that period of time where you're actually burning the existing fat that you have. And that only happens when you can get into a fasted state. For lean mass hyperresponders, I think that's actually all the time. In fact, I think it's even a blended fasted state through a lot of meals. They, they have very low basal insulin, super low levels. Um, and I, I suspect if I were able to do a lot of different uh, tests on them, I hope to do so at some point in time, that even their insulin response would be relatively low because they're already burning so much fat in particular. Very high affinity for fatty acids, right? And a lot of sparing of glucose. I believe that that's going to be a major... Um, I believe that's going to be a major factor that we find with them. But for somebody who's on the other end of the spectrum, they could have a very low metabolic rate and they could be hungry all the time and be like, I'm doing it. I'm like really calorie restricting. I'm really holding back, but they still have super high levels of insulin, even fasting insulin. And therefore their body is locked in this state of going, no, it's build and store time. It's build and store time. That's what we've got to do. You got to break out of that. You got to get to a point where you can be burning the existing fat that you have all the time because it, again, there's a kind of misconception that if you're really lean, you're not burning fat. You are definitely burning fat. You're burning fat as much as the other guy next to you who's uh, got a lot of fat and is like just, you know, trying to, trying to work on it with a ketogenic diet. Unless they're in a true drop of their weight, it doesn't matter. You have enormous amounts of rotation. Actually, I should, I should change that. A lean mass hyperspawner that's athletic may actually be burning a lot more fat than their sedentary counterpart anyway, because they're actually, they could have a higher metabolism in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've been working in a rural environment and I've had uh, some really bad type 2 diabetics of late. And one of my patients, I was going down this sort of rabbit hole with her and we were talking about blood sugar. She was running about 10s and 12s. And I said, you know, you need to get down to five. And I, and I know that um, with with Jason Fung, with their clinic, they run people high while they're on the insulin, run people high while they're on the sulfurinases and, and, and insulin secreting things. And then once they get them down to that single medication, that's when they drop them down. Because with all that insulin, um, they're unable to access their free fatty acids. And this lady said to me, if I get to five, and you've, and you've just said how, you know, that's barely normal, um, I feel completely hypo and terrible and I want to go to sleep and I just feel sick. And uh, uh, like you say, the, the freezers are full and, and the body's just, no, we're going to store more. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing. It's, it's a serious problem. I actually, um, I shouldn't say anything, but I, there's, as working with my friends and family has afforded me, I've kind of gotten a chance to get a sort of engineering perspective as to how I feel like I could solve this problem. Mm -hmm. So that family member that I'm talking about, I may be working on a technique um, that might be, might be helping that person out. Uh, so I, I don't know, but if, if ultimately I find that this works, I may be discreetly spreading it to a few uh, people who have their own um, patients just to see if it, could, if, if it could help because 
again, I'm, I'm going to sound like a biased individual saying this, but I feel like it's an engineering problem, right? Mm. The, what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to get the patient to have a level of satiation, yet still have a high enough metabolic rate that they can function, but still with those two in mind, accomplish getting to a fasted state. So you have three objectives. How can you engineer those three objectives? And I, I have some ideas on that, but I, I don't want to say them because the problem is oftentimes I'll say them and people will take them and run with them. Yeah. So I want to get a little more field testing first. No, nice. Mate, um, I'm sure we will have scratched the itch of many people, just what we've talked about today. Where can people find more information? Because I've been on, on your website and I follow your Twitter. Where, where do people find you, man? Uh, they can, of course, come to the blog at cholesterolcode.com. Uh, we've also expanded a little bit in that now we have uh, Siobhan Huggins on board. So it's not it's not just a me, it's also a her too. And I, I love a lot of the work that she's putting forth on uh, the immunological response with uh, and how cholesterol is involved with that as well as um, other metabolic things. She kind of covers a little bit more of the yang and I cover a little more of the yin on the energy distribution side. Um, but also I'm very active on Twitter as Dave Keto. Uh, and of course you can, you're always welcome to join the Patreon. Uh, if you ever want to see the sausage making of these experiments, that's patreon.com slash Dave Feldman. Uh, you can see me in anguish and pain, uh, <laughs> and, uh, pontificating on a lot of the experiments and the data as it comes in. So anyway, um, that said, you know, all of the information that comes forth, I make sure to put on the blog for free for anybody who needs it because a lot of people need it. There's, there's no, if there's any thought I would like to leave anybody with, whether they're pro, low carb or not, you should at least know just how dynamic this system is that manages your cholesterol. The thing that breaks my heart is how many people get one annual cholesterol test and from that their doctor decides to put them on lifelong lipid lowering therapy. I, I think in the future we're going to look back and consider this a very dark time that that was part of the process. Yeah, it's um, interesting times ahead, that, that's for sure. Um, so you probably touched on it just then, what, what you'd like of, of the community, but do you have a, a, a thought about your journey so far and how other people can run with, with what you've learned out of this experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, if there's anything that, um, that I've been surprised by, it's that the process of science in medicine and nutrition is not as rigorous as you might have thought it was. And that's, that's one thing that actually kind of continues to surprise me. Mm. Uh, in, in that respect, I would tell people, you know, just be more skeptical overall. And that includes from me, from anybody else, just don't treat anybody as a full authority. Take, take your health into your control. Take ownership of it. And do your own research. The bigger the decision, the more important it is to do your own research because you'd be surprised how many times you're told that something is unknown when it doesn't turn out to be. Beautiful. Um, thank you very much, Dave. It's so cool to connect across um, the Pacific and a bit more land as well. Um, yeah, it, it's cool to share your work with the New Zealand audience and hopefully more people um, take, take a better look at what their health is and, and what they're being told. Um, by the media, by their doctors, by their friends, by health professionals. Um, so thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Cheers. 
such a great message there from Dave to finish off. And I know we delve deep into the weeds a little bit there to do with cholesterol, but that's kind of the point of bringing you this podcast is that when it comes to those decisions, as Dave said, you need to go out and delve into the weeds, try to get an understanding for what exactly do these results mean for you. And especially in the case of cholesterol, is this result just once or is this a consistent disease state? Um, it's your health. Take responsibility for it. It's one of the messages that we often share with our listeners here is take responsibility for who you are, what you're doing, and for your health and well-being. And of course, when it comes to cholesterol, so many people are put on a statin from one high cholesterol reading and they never come off them. Um, delve into what is going on with your blood work and really make an informed decision about what it is that you're doing, especially when it comes to a potential lifelong medication and especially one that has side effects that are shown in statin. So, you know, don't take any of this advice as medical advice, for example. It's just some opinions, just some experiences, just some observations from two people. And the key message out of this is you need to make up your mind about what it is you're doing and be happy with that decision. Um, you need to take responsibility for your health and here's a point of view on the topic of cholesterol and so you can take that point of view do your research if you're in a position where your doctor is wanting to put you on a certain medication you have a point of conversation with that doctor to discuss so that's the point of the podcast it's never uh, medical advice it's never you know instructing you on your specific case but it's a little bit of knowledge to help you make an informed decision going forward of course Dave's handle is Dave Keto, and our podcast, as always, is brought to you by Waikito. So W A I K E T zero dot provenow.com to get your hands on exogenous ketones and experience ketosis. It's a great tool for helping you move into a ketogenic lifestyle if that's what you want to do. Um, it's also a great supplement for getting the performance enhancement of being in ketosis um, and being able to use a dual fuel of ketones and glucose especially if you're playing rugby like I'd like doing or, or going hunting, um, it's good to be able to use dual fuel, go those longer periods of time without food and still have plenty of energy. Otherwise, you can go over to our Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O, and um, check out all the content we've got there. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you found it really informative, and uh, thanks for listening.